you would, turn with me to Jonah chapter 2. Though we're going to be in Jonah chapter 2, we're really um, also going to be in part of chapter 1 again, but not much of it. And then we'll probably even go into some of chapter 3. Now, um, if you didn't know this, David will be preaching next week, and he will be covering chapter 3. And so we're excited about that, or I am at least. Um, I don't know if he's excited, but I hope he is, and I hope he's very nervous as well. Um, that's okay, though. That comes with the territory, right? Um, when we open up God's Word and teach from it, it's a very scary thing sometimes, and it should be. But this morning, we're going to be looking in Jonah chapter 2, and we're going to be continuing this study, uh, really, as the screen would tell us, really this depth of God's grace, and just seeing how deep this grace really is. Um, and last week, though, we, we saw it really in various different ways. We saw it in the fact that Jonah, this rebellious prophet, he tries to run from God and his calling from God. But God had a sovereign plan, even in Jonah's disobedience, to save these pagan sailors. And so we really just see this amazing work of salvation. We see the, the depth of God's grace is deeper than we could ever think because he could even take the sinful actions of man and cause very good things to come from it. And see, this morning, what we're going to be looking at is that God's deep grace is still on display when he saves all of us who call upon the name of Christ. And this leads us to not only praise him, but to live on mission for him, for we have been saved by and for him. And how we're going to see that and how we're going to understand that is by first looking at the life of Jonah in chapter 2. And what we're going to see is that God's deep grace is on display when he appoints this large fish to swallow up Jonah. And in this display, by Jonah's recounting of the events of God's deliverance from his seemingly apparent judgment from God, he then responds to Jonah, then responds by praising God and doing as God would call him to do. Just to kind of get us caught up a little bit more, is Jonah is written by a person that we don't know. Written in a time where we don't know. Um, We don't know. Like It's after Jonah's death, and it's sometime later in the future, but we really just don't know. It's hard to nail down when the book itself was written. So we can't look at the original audience to understand the context of what's going on here. So what we have to do is dig a little bit deeper and really just look at the story and the narrative itself. And in this, we see this character named Jonah, which is this prophet that you only see one other place in Scripture, and that is 2 Kings 14.25. 2 Kings 14.25. And because of where he falls at in 2 Kings, it kind of explains to us the issue going on at hand, the issue at hand. This conflict, per se. You see, this conflict is that in this time period, Assyria destroys Samaria. Assyria destroys Samaria, which is the capital city of the northern kingdom. So the, the Israelites, the, the, they're, they're separated into a northern and a southern kingdom. They're at odds with each other, per se, but they're even more at odds with those around them. And Assyria, nonetheless, comes in and destroys 
Samaria, takes it over, and then essentially deports all of the people that were there. And they become refugees all over. The reason why this is the conflict at hand is because Nineveh, according to chapter 1, verse 2, Nineveh, that great city. So Nineveh is a great city, but it was a part of the Assyrian Empire. So Jonah, someone from the northern kingdom, is called by God to go to a large city to preach God's repentance to a large city in the Assyrian Empire. Sometime after God allowed the Assyrians to destroy and to cause his people to be refugees. So Jonah, as we saw last week, essentially says, forget that, and he goes south. And he runs from what God is calling him to do, not as a hatred for Gentiles or pagans, but as a hatred for Assyria, as a hatred for Nineveh, and I would argue possibly even a dissatisfaction with the Lord. And so this morning, we're going to see Jonah's tune change just a little bit. And I don't want to give too much ahead so that David can cover it as he wishes and how God leads. But we are going to get into chapter 3 and chapter 4 some. Because what we're going to see in this is Jonah's tune changes, but his heart doesn't. Jonah may praise God at the end of verse 9, and he may glorify God. He may even in verse in chapter 3 go and do exactly what God called him to do. But Jonah's heart does not change. And so we're going to look at this, and we're going to see some things that we should do in response of God's grace. But I want it to be said on the front end is that we should be doing this not out of a place of being saved, but out of a place that we love the one whom saved us. Certainly there's times where we respond in in good ways simply because we know God is worthy to be praised and we should praise him. Certainly there's times where our heart is no different than Jonah's and that we're far from God. And we're simply crying out to him or we're reading about him or we're praying to him or we're gathering with the saints alongside each other for the purpose of worshiping him. Because we know that's what we need to be doing because we're not going to come back to God any other way. So certainly there's times where our heart's going to be wrong. But as we read the story of these people in the Old and New Testament, I think it's also very crucial that we would take and say, I can learn from this in some way. And so let's learn from it and let's apply it together. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at this section of Scripture really in three ways. We're going to look at verses 1 through 2. And we're going to just see it as this opening, this setting the scene. And then we're going to look at verses 3 through 9. And we're going to see this prayer of Jonah to God. And then in verse 10, we're going to see God's deep grace on display. Okay, So let's start off by praying together. or Let's read together and then pray together. Let's read all of it. It says, Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress. And he answered me out of the belly of Sheol and cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas. The flood surrounded me. 
all your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, that I shall look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head and the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed me upon me forever. Yet you brought me up, brought up my life from the pit. O Lord, my God, when my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you. Into your holy temple, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And then the Lord spoke to the fish and vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Heavenly Father, we love you. God, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you for the life of Jonah. God, we thank you for the deep, deep grace that you bestowed upon the Ninevites and the pagan sailors. God, we, as what Scripture would call Gentiles, those that were not born into this generation of people that have trusted in you for centuries, Father, we were much like them. God, even more, though, our sin caused us to be like them. We have rebelled and turned and sought things outside of your will. But, Father, you decided to send a messenger to us called your Son, Christ Jesus, to save and redeem and forgive us of our sins. And, God, even as believers, your deep grace abounds even more that when we are rebellious prophets, meaning that we're people that have rebelled against you, though we know you. God, when we're self-righteous and hypocritical, God, you show us much grace and mercy. And we thank you for that. And so as we look at Jonah's life and this prayer, God, let us glean much from it about you and who we are so that we can rightly live it out in light of your son's gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so I meant to read verse 17, but I forgot. So it's okay. It wasn't on the screen, so we're going to read it again real quick. It says, And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Um, just kind of forefront, I'm not going to dive deep into this. And yes, dive was a pun because we're talking about the ocean. But anyway, I'm not going to dive deep into this. But the three days, three nights, this is the, uh, the sign of Jonah, essentially is what Christ explains uh, during his ministry. Um, I want to focus on what Jonah's saying here, though, okay? And what we see in this is this is the set of Scripture that we often take with the story of Jonah and run with it. We put this on the wall in nurseries. We paint this big mural and all of those things, right? It's not bad to do that. But Jonah gets swallowed up by this fish because God appointed the fish, okay? It says, And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. God is doing something here. God is intervening in the life of Jonah for a reason and a purpose. It says, and Jonah was in the fish for three days and three nights. So two things happen. He's swallowed up and he stays in there for a little while, okay? The reason why that's important is when you look into verse 1, it says, then Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God, from the belly of the fish, saying. All right, so Jonah is now in the fish. This is kind of, it's not confusing, but it's a little confusing. Jonah is in the belly of the fish and he's praying to God in the fish, saying what we're about to look at. But in verse 2, 
he's kind of laying out the framework of the rest of the prayer. Um, kind of like this. It's kind of like if I said, Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for saving me from my sins. Okay? What did God do? Save me from my sins. And then in my prayer, I then began to flesh that out by saying, by forgiving me of my wicked sinfulness because you sent your son into the world to, to live a sinner's life, to die a sinner's death, live a perfect life, die a sinner's death, to be laid in the tomb, to conquer their sin, death, and grave, to then call me to yourself by the work of the Spirit in my life. And I then began to unpack what, how he saved me from my sins. So that's what Jonah's doing here. He's given this explanation of what happened in verse 2. And then 3 through 9, he's unpacking it in his prayer. He's expanding upon it. So what does he say in verse 2? He says, I cried out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. Now, this is a narrative, but this is also more of a poetic narrative. So he's using some words here, not as puns, but as a way of kind of uh, just providing the same kind of wording throughout the whole thing. So when he says, out of the belly of Sheol, it would be quick for us to take and think that he's talking about the belly of the well or the belly of the great fish, right? But Sheol is literally death. So he's saying, look, God delivered me out of the belly of death. I cried out and you heard my voice. As I was dying, I cried out and you saved me. Not as I was in the well, but as I died out, I was dying. The well, though, is what I want us to see, this big fish. I keep calling it a whale because of the, I'm stuck on that picture. I actually visualized a picture on a wall whenever I made that statement earlier because I've seen it so many times. But out of this fish, Jonah cries out. And in crying out to God, he's kind of thanking God for what already has occurred. And he's kind of going back and thinking back on it. He's been in this well for some days now, right? So it's time to reflect. It's not like he's got his phone in the corner of this well or he's got a book or anything like that. He's alone in this well with his thoughts and with God. So he's reflecting on everything going on in this prayer. What I want us to see in this, though, is the well is not an instrument of pain or suffering or sorrow for Jonah. The well was the deliverance for Jonah. The, the big fish was the deliverance for Jonah. So when he says the belly of Sheol, what he's talking about is the belly of death. We're going to see how he explains that. So just kind of the opening here, just so we're understanding the context. Let's get into the prayer itself. In verses 3 through 7, we're going to see Jonah's deliverance. And then in 8 through 9, we're going to see Jonah's response to this deep grace that God provided. Starting in verse 3, so it says, for you cast me into the deep. I want you to catch this language here, okay? This is trying to help us understand also how to read Scripture. Listen to the way he's talking about this. It says, for you cast me into the deep. Though we look back in chapter 1, we see technically it was the mariners, mariners that threw Jonah into the sea. But Jonah is rightly understanding that God is sovereign just as God provided the storm to come and just as God provided the well to save him, that he's understanding that God is the one at the work in his action of being thrown into the sea. That God is in the background doing something greater than him just being thrown overboard, okay? So he says, For you cast me into the depth, into the heart of the sea, and the floods surrounded me. All of your waves and your billows passed over me. 
in this prayer, Jonah is rightly contributing the creation that is now killing him to being God's. And it's easy for us to look at this. And honestly, I could show you my notes when I, I put it on social media. When I work through the text, I always start off with a blank piece of paper. And I just make a lot of observations. And one of those things I do is ask questions. Is what is going on here? Well, help me understand this. Help me understand this. And when I read this, I thought, is Jonah blaming God for what's going on? The more and more I dig deep into it, though, I don't think that's the case. I don't think this is an arrogance of saying, God, why did you do this? Why did you allow this to happen to me? Why are you killing me? It's more of rightly contributing the power over these things to the one who created them. And we see that as you keep going in verse 4. It says, Then I said, I'm driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head. At the roots of the mountains, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayers came into your holy temple. So what he's saying here, in verse 3, isn't a blaming God, but rather contributing rightly that God is the one in control of these circumstances. And we see that in verses 6 and 7 when he gives this contribution to God for being the one that saved and redeemed him. And how did God do that? By providing this great fish to swallow him up. But let's not miss over some things that are kind of harder for us to understand. At least it was for me. Because we got this analogy, this literal example of him falling down into the ocean. In verse 5, it says, The waters closed over me, the deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head, the roots of the mountains. So why did we go from talking about the ocean to the, the weeds and the, 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 the roots of the mountain? It's because what he's saying here is, I went deep. I sunk far. To the point that what he's alluding to here is that he was at rock bottom. There was no much farther away from God where he could go. What I find so interesting about this is that in chapter 1, in verse 3, it says, But Jonah rose to fled to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. In some way, somehow, Jonah thought that he could run from God. And the reality of it all is that he was in the deep part of the ocean, below the mountains, below the base of the mountains, being wrapped in by seaweeds or whatever the case may be. In the most farthest point of life he could ever have went. But in the swallowing up by the great fish, we see that he certainly was not able to run away from the presence of the Lord. And he's recognizing that here. He's coming to understand the power and the might of God. He's experiencing God in a way that he had not yet in his life. What I want to bring a piece to us in with this, in Jonah's deliverance, is there's often times in our lives that we have to go through the falling, the suffering, the pain, the sorrow, 
There's oftentimes where God refined us by the circumstances of this life to make us more like His Son. There's times where life is just not great. I know, right, this is a way to grow a church plant. Let's, let's talk about the negativity of life and how God can use those things for good. But the reality here is that life is not always peachy and not always easy. But God is always in control. Even in our rebellious actions, those who know and have trusted in Christ, those who are His people, Hebrews would tell us God will reprimand and correct and bring us back to Him in a way that is not only beneficial to us, but glorifying to Him. And so as we look at Jonah's deliverance here, like I said, we, we see the right words. And maybe even in this moment, the right heart. But we'll see that in chapter 3 is not a very long-lasting heart change. So my other application for this area would be that we as God's people, when we go through these difficult seasons of life, or these sinful seasons where God brings us back to himself, that we wouldn't allow it to be a short-lived experience, but rather it one that would project us and push us to personal holiness in a way that maybe other experiences haven't in our life. I touched on this two weeks ago in the book of Philemon. Is really and honestly for that to happen, that last aspect of actually letting this be more than a one-time experience that doesn't really change us, but really just changes us in the moment. We need each other. James chapter 5 tells us to confess our sins to one another, to pray for one another. Um, we need that in our lives. So in this, we see Jonah's deliverance. We see God intervening in the midst of his death at the bottom of the ocean. God does something. That he's praying to God and God actually does something. One thing before I miss it. is while Jonah was floating down, he certainly thought that he was going to die there. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. The weeds were wrapped about my head. The roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Jonah thought he was dead. And why did Jonah think he was dead? Is because Jonah knew he had ran from God and that he was now facing the judgment of God. The reason why that's important and why I wanted to end with that is when we really understand that, we can understand why he responds the way he does. Look at verses 8 through 9. It says, Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. When I read 8 and 9, and it's just because I guess I'm very skeptical as a person, but I also, I really, this is such a build-up kind of thing. It just goes with my happy-go-lucky personality, I know. But I focus on depravity a lot. And so when I read this, my, my focus in this initially, before I approached it with the right God-centered eyes, my thought was that Jonah 
in 8 and 9 is now assuming that he, in his death, is still better than the pagan sailors and the Ninevites. Because when you read verse 8, it says, Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope and steadfast love, but I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. To me, that initially reads as arrogance. But maybe it's because of my arrogance. Because what's actually going on here is he's declaring something about God in this statement. It says, those who pay regard to vain idols. It says, forsake their hope of steadfast love. But really, to make that make more sense, it says, those who pay regard to vain idols, those who worship vain idols, those who put their trust in idols are hopeless. Jonah's recounting on the experience that he's going through. And he's saying, look, if, if my hope was in idols, if my hope was in anything less than Christ, less than God, then I would have been hopeless. And he's exactly right. For, for, let's just use this as an analogy. If this is what I worshipped, and in the darkest and most difficult seasons of my life, what would this bring me? Momentary satisfaction in some sinful way? But will it bring me a deep, lasting grace full of hope and peace? By no means. And so what Jonah is saying is those who trust in these vain idols, it is worthless to them. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. He's saying, no, but I trust in you and that is everything. All of my hope is to be found in that. Why? Because in the moment when Jonah thought he deserved the, the wrath of God by dying at the bottom of the sea. Obviously not the bottom, but you know what I mean. As he was dying and wasting away to never come up again. As he was so far from God as he really sought in the very beginning. God intervened on his behalf. And in doing so he saved him by swallowing him up in a great fish. Jonah praises and thanks God for what he has done. Because God's grace is so deep here that it not only saves pagan sailors, but it saves the rebellious, hypocritical, and self-righteous prophet. But then we see in verse 10, God's deep grace on display. Because though we see it here, verse 10 is where it actually makes sense. Verse 10, the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. God intervened and he provides his ultimate deliverance. If I'm going to relate this in a way that makes sense to us today, is that we now, as those who have trusted in Christ, as we all took communion together, um, I assume that those who took it are believers, and so I'm going to speak very openly about this, that we as believers have been saved from our sin. That is certainly the case. We are already saved. 
But there's a reality to our salvation is the not yet. That final salvation has not occurred yet. Now, it is accomplished. It is done. It is set in stone. It will occur. There's no doubt about that. But it hasn't occurred for us yet. What I mean by that is that we're still in this sanctification stage. That we're still growing to be more like God. But in one moment, when we take our last breath and we're made completely right in His Son, there's this moment where we're going to reach the stage of glorification and that everything will be made right and everything will be made pure. And that is the final salvation, that we will be with the Father forever and ever and ever and ever. So Jonah was already saved, but in verse 10, he kind of gets to that idea of the final, the ultimate deliverance. We see that on display here. So we see God's deep grace on display. But what I want us to see in that, though, and I'm getting into next week and the next week's sermon just a little bit here, is look at the first three verses of chapter 3. It says, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose, he went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Large city. But we see this second attempt. We see this second moment, the second chance at bat, the second time as quarterback, whatever analogy you want to throw here, we see the second moment where God showed grace and then he gives Jonah the second chance. And in that, I want us to see that Jonah wasn't spit up in Nineveh. Because he says, Arise to go to Nineveh, a great city. So Jonah arose and he went to Nineveh. We don't know where he got spit up at, but he wasn't in Nineveh. So he still had this conscience decision to make. Am I going to go to Nineveh? We would look at this story and say, well, he would be dumb not to go to Nineveh at this point, right? I mean, he, he done got put on a boat, got thrown into the sea, was drowning, been in a fish for a couple days. It would be a dumb decision for him not to go to Nineveh at this point. But the reality is we often find ourselves taking third and fourth chances rather than doing what God called us to do the first or the second time. And then we also see in chapter 4 where his heart's definitely not changed. So it's just surprising here that Jonah would do what he does. And I would say it's arguably because God is at work in Jonah's life. And so therefore Jonah's doing exactly what God is calling him to do because God is the one that's given him the strength to do so. But in this, we see that Jonah was delivered for a purpose. God's desire to save Nineveh was still there. He was still at work in their lives. So Jonah wasn't spit out of the, the big fish onto the dry land for no purpose at all, but it was for the purpose of God to continue, and God's calling him back to that. But what was that calling? Let's look at the very last verse of the book of Jonah. In verse 11 of chapter 4, it says, And should I not? We're going to look at that, and should I not, in two weeks. But he says, And should I not? Pity, Nineveh, a great city in which there are more than 12, 120 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle. We're going to try to cover the much cattle later too, but we're going to focus here. God's desire and calling and purpose in saving Jonah wasn't so Jonah wouldn't die at the bottom of the sea. It's because God was doing something in Jonah's life to save these people. God's depth of grace is 
goes beyond all of our understanding. Why would God desire to save 120,000 people that in some way, some form, most likely played a part in the destruction of His people? Why would God show much grace and mercy to someone like that? Why would God want to save the Ninevites? So much so that He would go through all of this work to make sure it happened. We can ask those questions, but I think the right question would be better asked. And it's why does God take men and women that have known Him and have seen Him and rebel against Him and continue to save Him? See, God's grace is deeper than we could ever understand. And it's wonderful, wonderful news is that God doesn't treat people like we often treat people. Often in my own life, there's easy for me to look at people around me and to not trust them because of one other circumstance that have occurred. Or to not trust them at all just because I'm not a very trusting person. It's easy in my life to look at people around me and see some kind of hurt they cause in my life or even take something as simple as the way they acted in one, one social encounter and I'm quick to judge and think something less of them. But even more than that, how quick are we to not show grace to people because they've done something that has hurt us or offended us or caused problems for us? But we're talking about equal people here. But we have a God that not only looked at 120,000 pagan individuals in the land of Nineveh and desired to show them grace, but he looked at each and every one of us in our sinfulness and says, I want to save them. So the question, it should be first and foremost, yes, let's look at the Ninevites and see why God would want to do this. But let us not step too far from the Ninevites in ourselves. Because we can look at the Ninevites and we can put them on the, the, the same playing stage as terrorists or whatever the case may be to help us understand the cultural better and the day and the time. But spiritually speaking, you and I are no different than the Ninevites were. But we're also no different than Jonah was in his self-righteousness. And so God, in redeeming and saving us, has shown some deep, deep grace that goes beyond all of our understanding. And in that, we're no different than Jonah. Jonah, saved by God for a purpose. You and I, saved by God for a purpose. We could simply say that purpose is to glorify God in all that we do. That in eating and drinking, we would, tr- we would glorify Him. That would be certainly true. We could say that purpose is to make disciples. That's certainly true. We could say it is to proclaim the gospel. It is. We could say it is to rest in Christ. It is. But what I'm talking about is more specific. Because when we look at salvation, it is something that has happened corporately. So we're saved into a body. We're saved into the people of God. But it also is individualistic. So we're saved as an individual. When I come to salvation, my family doesn't come into salvation. If I'm being the godly husband I'm called to be, and the godly father I'm called to be, certainly God will work in that and save those around me, right? But the reality here 
is that when I'm saved, there is an individualistic nature to it. And so when I ask this question, I want it to be very personal to you. Is when God redeemed you, he redeemed you for a purpose. Often that purpose is to take and leverage our normal, everyday life to glorify him, to make disciples, and to proclaim the gospel. Okay? But my specific question is, how do you live that out in whatever you do in your day? If it be your job, if it be your parenting, if it be as a husband, if it be as a wife, if it be as a mother or father, if it be as a son or a daughter, if it be as a friend, how are you called specifically to leverage your life for the mission that God has called you to? Because when God saved Jonah in this physical death, he had a purpose for him, and really it's no different for us. When God saved us from our spiritual death, he has a purpose for us. So my prayer would be is that in that, we would also understand that you may be able to identify that. You may not be able to identify that perfectly. But you may be able to, and when you do, you're not going to be perfect in it. And if you don't identify it, you're certainly not going to be perfect in it. But the reality is still the same, is that God saves people we don't. So whatever God is calling you to do, yes, certainly seek it out, live it out. But as we do so, let's rest in Christ to do it for us. Let's trust in his sovereign work as God sends the waves, sends the, the, the big fish, as God spits him out in the right spot as God does all of these amazing things to save the Ninevites, God's certainly going to do the same thing for those around us. But we're called to be much like Jonah and to go and to do. Let's pray together.